Do you want to make games? Join the WVU Game Developers Club. They meet every Thursday at 6.30 in the Evansville Crossing, room 412. No prior experience is necessary. They help you make your first game, regardless of what background you have. Uh, everyone is welcome. You can check them out on Twitter at WVUGDC. Also check out their Facebook page. We hope to see you there. Hey, and welcome to Game Talk episode 19. I'm your host, Ahmed Mion. This week I'm joined by Michael Dumeyer. Hello. And Connor Haynes. Hey, guys. Our first topic today is going to be discussing Microsoft's new game, Sea of Thieves, and how it sort of continues uh, a rising trend in the gaming industry of game creators over-promising on content and then under-delivering. I say this because uh, reviews for Sea of Thieves are coming out and players are finally getting their hands on the game. And it was initially billed as this sort of open-world sandbox game in which you can meet up with your friends and go on quests and, like an MMO, sort of in the same vein as Destiny. As players are quickly finding out, there's a very sparse amount of content in the game. And this is, the first, this is not the first time this has happened uh, from a major publisher. Um, so I kind of want to just bring up that notion to you guys, that why do you think we're seeing this increasing trend of games which overpromise and then underdeliver with content. So, I think in some cases they don't they don't necessarily know that they're overpromising. I think some of them honestly believe that they're going to be able to make the games that they are saying they can make and then somewhere along the line they realize that they can't, but make making a game is incredibly expensive. And they can't just throw that money away. So, like, it's a, it's not an option for them to, like, say, sorry, guys, didn't work out. Will you buy it anyway? They have to, like, they have to just lean into it. And You bring up an excellent point. And as someone who has worked on games before, like I know you have, and so have I. Right. It is so easy to say that you're going to do something and then halfway through development realize how actually difficult and time-consuming the thing you want to implement is. And I think... For a lot of game developers, it isn't uncommon to sincerely overestimate what they can deliver. They sincerely believe that they will be able to ship the game with like X, Y, and Z, which I don't know about. Uh, a famous example would be No Man's Sky. I don't know if they genuinely believe they were going to cram all the stuff into the game that they were advertising, but we know how that turned out. Uh, the final product didn't even come close to the promised content. Right. I feel like it was very naive of them. I um of the of Hello Games and No Man's Sky uh to promise those sorts of things. Um I don't know if I agree that Sea of Thieves in particular overpromised though because yeah, I Definitely not to the degree No Man's Sky did. I can't think of anything that Sea of Thieves promised would be in the game that's not there. It's just that what's there is not adequate for a $60 release, in my opinion. I think what might have happened with Sea of Thieves, because you're right, uh, in no means were they disingenuous like Hello Games were with No Man's Sky, but I think what happened was people, like uh, consumers like us, saw the game, got really hyped, and their expectations became really high, and right. then the game was not able to meet those expectations. Yeah, I mean, I, I just I have a hard time sympathizing with anybody who thinks they were lied to by Sea of Thieves because they gave us a beta and said, this is the full game, pretty much, you know? And then everybody expected more on release. And they also, like, even at E3 a year ago, they showed us the game. Like, that's the whole game. 
and they showed the whole thing to you in about 20 minutes. So I guess this leads to another interesting thing. Gamer culture has like a pretty, I don't want to say bad habit, but it, they have a habit of overhyping things and taking little details out of context and sort of right, I imagining that. things that on paper aren't realistic. And in this case, um, it, it does seem like Rare was genuine and they weren't trying to mislead the consumer. But uh, on the flip side, for No Man's Sky and Hello Games, that, that was absolutely the case. Uh, Sean Mur- Murray was blatantly lying about what would be in the game. Right, right. Can you think of any other recent games that fell victim to this sort of... I, I gotta think of, like, Ark Survival Evolved. I think it's what called. happened with that? It, um... I don't know. The developers kind of promised the world. It's not a game I've played. I've just kind of watched the controversy. Have you played the, it, Michael? Yes, I've played Ark. The thing about Ark is that the developers kind of fell victim to feature creep, almost. And that uh, the game eventually came to its release date. They released it. It was about about as optimized as it was when it first launched in early access. They had done nothing for optimization, instead just stacked more and more content on a broken system and expected it to work out. And that's what a lot of people find a problem with. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, uh, that's, that's the biggest example I can think of off the top of my head. Another problem I see, um, and this is another issue sort of with consumers, is that... Um, you were talking about how their minds kind of run wild when they hear about something. The average person doesn't know a ton about game design. And so, like, you'll... And I'm not calling anybody out with that. Right. Just I mean, not... how could you know unless you actually actively spent the time researching? Right. But, like, a common thing people ask for is a Pokemon game that has all the regions in it or something. And, like, I think of that as a designer as a nightmare. I would never want to make that game because it just wouldn't work. In my opinion. It also have take up so much space. Right. And it just, yeah, I just can't imagine that game ever working. But it's like one of the most requested thing among Pokemon fans. Oftentimes they cite, you know, oh, uh, the Crystal, Gold, and Silver games, they had Kanto in it. It was a severely stripped down Kanto that was the bare minimum. And Johto was a smaller region to make up for that. Right. And that's just an example of, like, things that a player might, like, think of when a game gets announced, like, oh, man, I really hope the game has this. And then even though that would have sucked, they're going to be disappointed when it's not in the game. Right? If that... Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, and I think you're right. Now that we're talking this out, I'm more of the opinion that more often than not, it's not so much the the game creators under-delivering, so much as it is that people having wild expectations See, that I, need to be kept in check. I'm kind of in the middle with Sea of Thieves because when I look at it, I don't see a $60 release. There's right, just not, I see, I I see, see the, 30 tops. Yeah, exactly. It's in the same vein as No Man's Sky, I think. Like it sh- And that No Man's Sky was by no means a $60 release either. Right, and that's not like a result of over... I'm not mad about what happened to Sea of Thieves. I don't have any anger. Like, I didn't get overhyped for it or anything. I just would never pay $60 for what is effectively three quests that you do over and over again. So I want to bring something up. Bungie released Destiny, the original Destiny, in kind of a similar fashion. Uh, a lot of the circumstances can be... can You can see a parallel between the release of Sea of Thieves and Destiny. When it was first released, it was hyped, there was a lot of promise, then players finally got their hands on the game and were disappointed from the lack of content. 
but if you recall, for the first Destiny game, over the course of two years, Bungie really fleshed that game out and added so much to it. So do you think this is Rare kind of following in their footsteps? I... Because that's a huge gamble to take. As we know, like, us gamers, I mean, we're very fickle. You know, if something isn't interesting, gamers quickly move on to something else. I want to believe that that's what Rare is doing. And um, I, th- I feel like there's a little bit of evidence for that in that Microsoft just started their Game Pass and Sea of Thieves is included in that. But they have no roadmap available anywhere. There's nothing, like, telling me what's going to be added to the game. There's no, There are no features that they've said would be in the game that are not in the game. Well, and there's no... to, to play devil's advocate, the game just came out. Right. I, f- I feel like they want to let the game sit for a few weeks before they release some kind of roadmap or hint to the n- <sighs> new content or anything like that. I just don't think... Now, do you think C- uh, Rare will charge $20 per expansion or something like that? Because that's what Bun- Bungie did. I... I don't know. I mean, Bungie is Bungie. They were the creators of Halo. They had a lot of clout. Rare, yes, they were a huge name back in the day, they but were. Their, their name not does not hold the same clout that it once used to. So I don't think they would be able to get away with charging $20, $30 per Sea of Thieves expansion. I just don't know what I would... Sea of Thieves is a tough one because I don't know what you could add in a DLC that would improve the game because, like, the combat is bad. You can't fix that in DLC. Well, That's they, a core system. They have, like, islands you can explore, right? They could add more islands. They have, like, raids, quote-unquote, you can do. I, I, I saw that there's, like, a Kraken boss battle raid type thing. They yeah. could add more stuff like that. My understanding, though, isn't that there aren't enough islands or that the islands are bad. It's just that there's nothing to do on them. So they would have to add, like, more quest structures I don't, I, I mean, I just feel what? like they've got this shell of a game that needs filled in, and there's no way for me as an outsider who hasn't worked on the game to have any idea what would be good to fill it with. What you're saying right now is 100% what people were saying when Destiny 1 came out. So I, I'm fascinated to see what trajectory this game will take. Uh, Michael? Sea of Thieves also has the problem of, you know, you can get so much gold, but it's just cosmetic at that point. Right, like, yeah, there's, there's no, no progression. No progression. A DLC could fix that, but I don't know how well. Yeah, I have trouble with it, um, with their progression, because they say that they want to lock everybody in laterally, like no player has an advantage over another player. But I don't, I've watched a lot of streams of it, and it seems like player versus player combat is very rare in Sea of Thieves. It doesn't come up very often. Yeah, there's like 25 people on a server, and the I maps mean, are big. Sea of Thieves strikes me. It's primarily a co-op game, right? It's not a PvP game. It's it's a game where you can hop on to a, a pirate ship with a few of your friends and have and fun. And speak like a pirate and right. um, have a good time. But that's the thing. They need to implement more things for your friends to do. Right, you know, they've you got these instruments that have three songs. Like, I mean, that's just... An Assassin's Creed pirate game had more songs than that. Like, <laughs> It was yeah. a really good... Assassin's Creed Pirate game. Yeah, I I know that's fair, but like three songs. Yeah. So when you put it like that, let me like flip flip it on its head here. Do you think that Rare can get away with releasing this game with minimum content because they've seen other people do it and they know that they could just fill in the blanks later? You I know? I don't think it's gonna work out for them in the long run. I think I think a lot of people are gonna cash in their free uh, Game Pass two weeks to play Sea of Thieves for four or five hours, see everything there is to see, and then be done with it. And I don't think 
because they didn't actually pay for the game, because they used that Game Pass to play it, the people that didn't end up keeping Game Pass aren't going to play any updates that come out because they're not going to have that $60 investment already. They're not going to be sitting there thinking, well, for, for just 20 more dollars, I could have a decent game, you know? And I feel like Bungie kind of had people by the wallet there because yeah. they were already, you know, they had that sunk cost fallacy going on. They'd already spent $60. They might have well spent 20 more. Plus, Destiny mechanically was a blast to play, whereas Th- Sea of Thieves... Sea of Thieves sailing-wise, from what I understand, is a blast. It's just the combat is garbage. But the quest structures just seem strange to me. Like, one of them, you're moving chickens around, and that's the whole quest. You're, like, finding these chickens and delivering them. One of them, you're digging up a treasure chest, and one of them, you kill skeletons. Neither, like, none of that sounds compelling to me at all. I don't know. It sounds like the worst part of Skyrim. (laughs) Part of me still thinks that Rare lives a couple decades in the past maybe i don't know i can't think of a time when this game would have been acceptable i mean graphically it's beautiful but i i i do think this game will follow the trajectory of no man's sky rather than destiny and as with no man's sky when it first came out everyone bought that game like so many people it sold so incredibly well but then the player base dropped after like off of a cliff in a week See, I don't when think everybody's going to buy Sea of Thieves because they don't everyone, have to. Yeah, when everyone saw everything they needed to see. Um, granted, with No Man's Sky, Hello Games still pushes out free updates to that game. They right. keep improving it, even though hardly anyone is playing it, which, to their credit, is a respectable thing to do. They could have easily taken the cash, moved on to a new project. I'm just worried for Rare, though, is the thing. Like, this could be catastrophic for them financially, could it not? Because everybody's getting the game for free through the Game Pass for two weeks. It could be, yeah. We don't know exact numbers yet, but keep in mind, Rare, before this, they were making, what, like, Connect sports games? Yeah, but people Kinect? still bought them. Like, people didn't play them for free. Well, a lot of Connect, uh, weren't the Connect sports game, like, shipped with for free with the Connect? Even like, then, there's still, them? there's still money involved there. There's no money changing hands here. <laughs> like, uh, I think that's I mean, there's significantly hyperbolic. less, but, yeah. like, to get a free game, like, anybody with any head on their shoulders, everybody's saying, like, Use the Game Pass, play it for a couple hours, you're done. Yep. And I just don't think, I mean, that's just going to be, I think that's going to be catastrophic for them. So going back to, like, the topic at hand here. Yeah, we kind of went off the rails. No, no, it's fine. But I was just going to say, they didn't over-promise, but they did uh, under-deliver. Yeah. That seems to be the case. Yeah, I I could definitely agree with that. They definitely did not deliver a 60... I don't even know, like... For Sea of Thieves to be successful, it did not ship correctly. It needed to ship with way more content and a tangible progression system and a clear roadmap of what was to come, and it doesn't seem to have any of those. Right, I think... I don't know. I think from a core design, they've kind of shot themselves in the foot where, like, the whole world is open from the start. All, you have the whole map available. See, like, I think they could have done lateral progression, but like maybe you unlock sections of the map to explore. See, that's like or... one of the core... That seems to me like a core failing of open-world game design philosophy. There needs to be a sense of progression and discovery. Right. Because if there... So, and if there isn't, then it's just, you're just a not, sandbox. Yeah, you're just not being rewarded well enough. You're just being sold a $60 sandbox. Right, and like... A $60 sandbox, that's not the worst thing in the world. Like, I, you know, I like the Just Cause games, and for all intents and purposes, that's what they are. But, like, there's progression in them. And then they've chosen to give you a sandbox with no progression. Yeah. And it just, I don't know, I mean, even Minecraft has progression. Like, 
I can't think of a sandbox that is fun and doesn't have progression off the top of my head. Right. They just, I don't, I don't know what they were thinking there. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, so final thoughts on Sea of Thieves. Um, if you've got a PC or an Xbox, I recommend using the Game Pass to check it out. Yeah, I mean, More than likely, you'll find that the content isn't enough to make you stay there like they expect you to. And I guess we'll see in the future if Rare has the chops to keep it interesting. Yeah, it definitely looks to me like a fun couple hours with your buds, though. I'd like to add that I think Sea of Thieves is what Microsoft's expecting to sell their Game Pass, and I don't think it's going to do it. Yeah, I don't think it's going to do it. Yeah, what other exclusives do they have in the pipeline in the immediate future? I mean, Halo, eventually. Eventually. Yeah, Halo Halo needs to happen sooner rather than later. Crackdown 3. Crackdown 3 is in the soon pipeline. It is, yeah. and but it was in the soon pipeline a year and two years ago as well, so it keeps getting delayed. Halo's lost a lot of but, clout. But uh, just so. a sort of aside, rumor has it that they're adding a Battle Royale mode to Crackdown, which is why it was delayed. So I could see that. That totally seems like it could be true to me. Uh, yeah, I just don't I don't know that I'd... That feels like they're just hacking it on, kind of. You realize everyone's going to be adding Battle Royale. I know, and I hate it. I hate that that's You know Red happen. Dead Redemption 2 is going to have a Battle Royale mode? Okay, but I'm not sure that's the worst thing in the world. That oh, sounds no. kind of fun. Everything Rockstar does turns to gold, so it's not going to be bad. But yeah. I'm just saying, like, there will be so many Battle Royale modes in all these games going forward. I better not have to pay millions of dollars for a shiny gold horse. Yeah. But anyways, uh, we should move on to our next topic. Uh, Connor, do you want to introduce that one? So at GDC 2018 here, uh, just a week or two ago, um, I don't know when that'll be when this uploads, a game developers union is uh, was announced and is forming. And I think that's very interesting because uh, <laughs> game developers have for a long time been kind of complaining about conditions that they go through. Um, something called crunch is uh, brought up a lot, which is... Uh, Basically working really long work weeks, crazy long hours, some even sleep in the office to try to meet deadlines that just aren't realistic at all. And um, it's really bad for your health. It's not – it's really bad for your mental health. And um, it Very also, bad for your personal life. Yeah. And it also just wouldn't be acceptable in any other industry. So, That's right. um, Especially, like, you can look at other arts industries like film. They have unions. Um the voice actors, even in games, have a union. It just, yeah, it seems kind of crazy that um, that game developers don't have a union yet to try to fight this kind of thing. And um, I don't know, I kind of want to talk about a couple of the reasons that maybe we don't have one. Um, one of the big ones that comes to mind is that uh, everybody wants to be a game developer. Everybody wants to be a new game developer. And um, that means that those aren't very valuable. You can fire them and get new ones quickly. Um, the issue that creates, of course, is that you don't have experienced game developers uh, because nobody, you know, wants, you know, it, it, it drives people away from the industry, for sure. And um, that, I think that's the case for a lot of third-party studios, but I feel like first-party studios, your job is a little more secure there. Right, yeah, and um, the terrible conditions I'm talking about, I don't want to make it seem like that's everywhere. I, I don't think that that's the case. I think smaller studios either don't have it or the developers don't mind because they have so much input, they creative have, input They have more on the freedom game. in smaller studios. But I don't, like, I don't want you to downplay this issue because like, no. it is it extremely is yeah. widespread. Like, it is bad. Not only, yeah, it is horrible. And I would say over 90% of all game development studios 
suffer from this problem. Yeah, it's, I mean, it drives people away. I think the average amount of time people spend in the industry is five years, and that's just because you're so burnt out from being treated like trash. And and also, you have to look, like, a game developer versus a software engineer, it's, it's a very similar skill set, but you're taking a massive pay cut because people don't want to pay game developers because everybody wants to be one. And a union could help fight that. A union could help drive away crunch. Yeah, and I... I wanted to highlight a little more about crunch. Just the nature of game development leads me to believe that for most studios, crunch is unavoidable. Like, especially like when you look at the best of the best studios out there in the world. And uh, first one that comes to my mind is Naughty Dog. Every single major release they have, like The Last of Us, Uncharted, most of the highest quality work gets done in the crunch time. And... I've heard interviews from different developers. Uh, Amy Hennig, who wrote the first three Uncharted games, she gave a very poignant interview saying that, yeah, uh, working on those games was the most rewarding thing she's ever done in her life, but it also almost destroyed her life because she couldn't go home, she she wasn't eating regularly, sleeping regularly, and she was just 100% of her mind, body, and soul was put into that game. So I don't buy it. I don't think crunch is unavoidable. And, and let me tell you why. I've been in the position where I'm setting the deadlines, and uh, I messed it up. I created a situation where y- you were working with me on this project. We had to crunch. And that was 100% my fault because I was an idiot, and I said we could do something we couldn't do. But that was my first so long-term project. Let me, let me bring this up, though. You said you did that, and I feel like what you did is an extremely common mistake to make. So common to the point where... I feel like people almost don't even realize they're overscoping. Okay, but let me tell you this. I'm on my second project now. I've had uh, three or four deadlines go by now. I should know the exact number, but I don't. I have not had to crunch on them. I had one time where I missed a deadline because somebody quit on me, but I have not had to crunch. So I I wanted to bring up a statement you made earlier. Like you said, you don't hear as much about crunch from smaller studios, right? And, right. and you're I'm a, I'm comparatively a very, small, a very studio. small studio. You have these game projects with hundreds of people working on them. And with increased quantity comes increased complexity and more bureaucracy and more you know hoops to jump through to get what you want done. All right, but you can say that all you want, but let's look at the other industries that... Uh, let's look at film, another industry that's unionized. They don't crunch, and they have... Just as many people See, <clears throat> working as games do. You bring up a great point. They don't crunch. They just push back the release date of the film. Right. And that happens sometimes with games. But more often than not, the very top level, like if Activision says you're putting that game out, like hard deadline, you just have to make it work, and then that game is being shipped. And, and that's and that's why a that's lot of times... That's what a union's going to get rid yeah, of. A lot of times today, you see games that are broken on launch or missing so many features, and the developers patch out a few months later when in reality... That game was not ready to ship. So and a few, it could have benefited from a few more months. So I think the effect of a union, I think there's going to be a few, and none of them are going to be particularly favorable to gamers. I don't think. But that's okay. Like we right. need, we need to tr- treat the people well, who make this stuff with more respect and in the give lo- them time to breathe. In the long term, I genuinely believe this will give us better games because it will attract more talent to the industry. But in the short term, what I see this doing, I think we're going to have longer development times. I think 
we might have smaller teams because I think it's going to be more expensive to hire developers. I don't know. I don't. I. Uh, that's that's purely uh, conjecture. I. I don't see the price of games going above sixty dollars. I think there are some people saying that, and I don't think it's going to happen. Um, I feel like it should, <laughs> because, I mean, games nowadays are taking longer to develop and are much larger in scope than games were ten years ago. You know, um, granted, there are a lot of developers are off-putting that cost with microtransactions, loot boxes, and that sort of thing. Right. I don't think that'll go away. But I think I think in the long term we're going to have people that stick with the industry longer, which means, you know, eventually I think deadlines are going to be more reasonable. I think we're going to have healthier developers, which will make better games in the long run. Yeah, I mean, in terms of deadlines being met and avoiding crunch, like, you need to have an excellent project manager. Right. And also... You have to have someone at the very top executive level that will understand that in the best interest of producing the best product and making the most gamers happy, it's okay if the game gets delayed. I think that's something that Sony, uh, personally just following Sony like I do, is very good at. Um, If Naughty Dog says they need more time on a game, they give them more time, but Naughty Dog being Naughty Dog, they always find a way to make crunch for themselves even when a game is delayed. So you see that a lot with uh, these companies that have a first-party relationship with, you know, Sony or Nintendo. They're way more intimate than maybe, say, you know, like Activision and Bungie, you know? Right. Um, And when you move away from that first-party relationship and get into third-party studios, I feel like it's way more of a machine. You just, there's a deadline, meet it, ship the game, work on the next thing. And, like, whether or not it's optimal or the best it could be doesn't matter. Right. I also think that that could be an effect of um, eliminated crunch at first, is that we may get a wave of very buggy games again, like we did in 2016, I think it was. Maybe, yeah. I don't remember. It was a couple years ago. We got a wave of incredibly buggy games. And I think that we will get that, and then there will be backlash, and it'll go away again. Yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if that was 2016 or 2015. Anyway, I uh, I, I think wish it was 2015. I wish this union the best of luck, but they have a lot to get over because there's a humongous culture in game development of you should you're lucky to be here. You should be happy you have a job in the industry at all. Like how how dare you ask for more? Yeah. Like there were a lot of game developers who lashed out uh, when the voice actors went on strike. And again, that was completely justified for right, them too. Right. Yeah. I I think it's absurd to lash out against your fellow worker for asking for you know, for asking for something from your employer. I think, like, even if they're asking for, like, like, hey, why should he be paid more than me? I think you should be thinking, hey, why am I not paid that much? Yeah, you know, I agree. I It's a whole it's a whole mess. Um, but uh, I, I think the future's bright. I'm glad it's happening. As somebody who wants to be in the game industry, I will feel more comfortable if there's a union involved. Um, I just wish them luck. Yeah. And like you said, if they succeed, it will turn the industry on its head for a while. Right, it'll and change the effects a lot. of that are kind of. I don't know if I could predict the effects of that. Who mm-hmm. knows what could happen? But in the end, I think this is best for everyone—the consumer and and the developers. Right. I, ju- I just can't stress enough how much talent gets scared away. I think by by the idea of game development and crunch. I mean, <clears throat> sorry, I keep bringing up Sony examples, but. Bruce Straley, who I think directed The Last of Us, 
has quit Naughty Dog because not because like uh, he was burnt or he didn't like working there or whatever. He's just burnt out on making video games. Right. He can't do it anymore. And he was, and obviously as the creator of The Last of Us and I think several Uncharted games. Very talented. He's, yeah, one of the most talented people in the industry. And he was just like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. He took an extended sabbatical and that just turned into him resigning. It just doesn't feel like right. the game industry right now is not sustainable. It's not something you can get. It's you absolutely not sustainable. You can't right retire now. in it. You yeah. can't get to that level of experience you get in old age. Like, I, I just feel like you look at Japan, right? They've got like they had Awada, they had Miyamoto, they have all these older developers that have been around a while. They have all this experience, and when you, when you look around in the scene in the U.S., you see a lot less of that. I feel like, and I'm not yeah. saying crunch doesn't happen in Japan, but the whole culture is different there. You know? No, you make a, an excellent point. I mean, the closest U.S. analog I can think of is maybe Todd Howard. Maybe. Right, and he's not very old. He's... Yeah, and he's the oldest one I can think of. Yeah. Um, Peter Molyneux, maybe? But he... Oh, he's know, gone, he's... isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he's not very well-respected anymore, really. No, I'm not saying he's well-respected. I'm just saying he's been around a while. He's um, got experience. Oh, I thought you were talking about, like, prominent. Like, okay. But anyways, um, just the notion of the game industry as it is right now is unsustainable. That is something a lot of people working in, like, big AAA studios feel. And, like, they're not going to say it, you know, they're not going to voice their complaints unless they're directly asked. Really good game journalist Jason Schreier, who works for Kotaku, collected a bunch of interviews that he did, he, he conducted with people from different studios, and all of them said the same thing. Like, I can't see myself staying here because I lost... Uh, my wife divorced me because I wasn't home enough working on games or, like, I haven't had a chance to start a family because I've been working on this game and I right. can't, you know, like, these people are treated like cogs in a machine rather than valuable workers. Right, and that terrifies me because I, I love making games. I really do, but I just can't see myself giving up giving up my and life. And also, I feel it. like that's a huge factor we see. We're seeing the proliferation of the indie games scene right where you have the freedom to create what you want granted you don't have the resources to create something like uncharted but right you but can you still don't create see... you can still execute on your vision yeah you don't see mike bithel you don't see rami ishmael i'm gonna butcher his name but rami ishmaeli you don't see them complain he's the Lambeer or Flambeer. they're a big studio he just got an award for diversity in games or something anyway um yeah, you don't hear them complaining about crunch so much because they, you know, they started their own studios. They're good to their workers. I, 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 yeah, I don't know how else to put it. It's just, it's a problem and it needs to be addressed. Right, and I think, uh, I think a union is gonna do something about it. First step, at least. Yeah. Uh, Michael, you've stayed quiet this whole time. Do you have anything to add? Nope. I think there are some uh, there are some concerns about unionization, like um, where's the money for higher wages going to go? Um, what kind of backlash are the publishers going to have against a union? Huge backlash. Yeah. So, I think that's a little frightening. But I feel like every time a union is formed, at first in every industry, they have to go through similar backlash. Right? No one wants to pay more money and yeah, like, no one sacrifice that sort of thing. Like m Corporations don't want that sort of thing. But No like, employer you have to, you wants to, his employees to unionize. Yeah, you have yeah. to fight for it. And I think it's, yeah, it's definitely beyond time that this was happening. It should have been, it should have started a, started a, a, a decade ago. Yeah. Yeah. A decade or two ago. 
Uh, any final thoughts? Uh, no? Nope. Okay. Um, okay, so our last topic is going to be on narrative-based games. So these games typically don't require a lot of, like, mechanics to, to play and enjoy. They're, they're designed around the sole purpose of conveying a story. Games that come to mind in this vein are like the Telltale games, Life is Strange. Beginner's Guide. Yes. The Stanley um, Parable. Stanley Parable. Uh, a, a less kind of uh, a less kind of respectable name they've been given is Walking Simulators, quote unquote. Right. I okay. So is that what is that? Are we gonna define a narrative game as strictly a game with few mechanics? Because I when I play it. Undertale is a narrative game to me. Like it's a game that I play because I care about I think about the Undertale story is yeah, I, Undertale is like a hybrid of things, but I think most I think typically games that are focused on narrative have kind of easy mechanics, you know. Okay. You see cuz like, I that's why they call walking a lot of these a games lot of them just walking involve like right. walking around, talking, and that's how the story is exposed. See, I just want to find common ground cuz like in my Steam library, I have Dark Souls <laughs> listed as a narrative game just because it is a game I play more for the narrative than the gameplay. But, yeah, but that's not that's not yeah. how I would classify Dark Souls at least. Right, that's why I want yeah. to put us on the same page before we dive into this. Yeah. So when I think of a narrative game, I think of games in that sort of vein. You don't really do too much mechanically. You're only playing it to ingest a story right, of, of f- some kind. I feel like Gone Home Gone really, Home. Gone really Home works. kicked yeah. off this genre. I agree, I yeah. Gone Home was the first quote-unquote walking simulator. I am not sure that's true. I think Dear Esther came first. Was that really before Gone Home? Yes. Dear Esther definitely was one of the first walking simulators, and boy, was it boring. Yeah, Dear Esther was... Dear Esther is the one that put a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, I think. I, en- and I then enjoyed it Gone a little, Home but... was the one that showed that it could be done right. in a very compelling way. So I think it's still accurate to say Gone Home sort of kicked off the right. wave of people trying to tell stories in that fashion. Right? I agree with that. And then not too long after, I think, the first Telltale game, The Walking Dead, came out, and that captured everyone's hearts. Like That was one of the most critically acclaimed games of that year. Didn't play it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's a very um, very emotional, very sad story. And ever since then, Telltale's gone on to make like dozens of different games based right. on different franchises, all in the similar vein of you're, you're not really doing anything mechanically intensive, you're just walking around talking, and like the decisions and dialogues you choose in the game impact like the flow of the story. Right. I definitely uh, I definitely am into. Um, these narrative games, I I tend to like the ones that have a couple of mechanics tacked on, like Life is Strange has some puzzle solving in it. Yep. And uh, the time travel mechanic is interesting. I'm a big fan of it. Um, I haven't actually played any Telltale games. Wow. Okay. Uh, I've got a I'm batting zero there. But I definitely like games. Like I love Gone Home. It's one of my favorite games. The Beginner's Guide, I've played probably five times. I love Firewatch. That game's amazing. So I want I want to bring up a point. Yeah, Firewatch is great, but um, the fact that these games are mechanically simple, I feel like. So I I'm of two minds on this. I feel like one, these games could benefit from having a a couple like simple mechanics, like you mentioned in Life of Strange, the rewind mechanic and how it was baked into the game. Right. I think uh, simple mechanics like that can add a lot to these narrative games. 
Yeah, I um. But at the same time, I think they can't overdo it because I think it would turn off their primary audience. See, I have an issue with um, Gone Home, Firewatch, even um, The Beginner's Guide a little bit because they are games that have potential, in my opinion, to appeal to non-gamers, yeah. right? But they use a first-person camera, which I think is one of the hardest movements to teach a non-gamer. I agree. Yeah, it is. So I think that's a really strange design decision, but they continue to make it over and over. And I, I like it as a, like, as a player, I like that because I'm more immersed in it with a first-person camera. Yeah. I get more into it, but I feel like I wouldn't lose that much to have it as an option to like have a, a non-gamer mode or something. Yeah. There, there definitely is a fine line. And I, and I think um, that the, the Telltale games dodge that. Yeah. That problem. A non-gamer can play a Telltale game. Yeah, so an example, my youngest sister doesn't play games, but she recently started playing these narrative games like Life is Strange, and she loves them. And she asks me about more games in that vein. Like, I asked her what she wanted to play, and she was just like, more games with a, like, with a story is what she said. And I was like, <laughs> okay, yeah, I understand what you're trying to say. There's like a very specific genre that now caters to that style of gamer that only wants to um, play those narrative-based games. Right, and I I like it a lot. I like that they're short. Um, I like most of these games you can beat in two or three hours. Yeah. Um, I think that's very appealing. Well, it's like... I don't know. A lot of the Telltale games are longer. I would say like six to eight. Oh, really? Because Gone yeah. Home, Firewatch, those are all... Those are shorter. And I, I think even Life is Strange is like six to eight hours. Yeah, but Life is Strange is split up into hour-long episodes. Yeah, a lot of these a lot of these narrative-based games are split into... Like all of the Telltale series are split into episodes. Right. And I, th- I think that's great. I, uh, yeah. I think that's a great application of that price model. And they often give away the first chapter for free, or the first episode for free yeah. or something so that you can get a taste for it, get hooked. Like it's a good hook, yeah. Good narrative hook. I like it a lot. I, I don't like that. Like, it upsets me that um, some of the uh, episodes of Life is Strange are underwhelming compared to the others. I feel like yeah. if it was one full game, maybe that wouldn't have I happened. I think but a, a very common trend across these episodic narrative games, the first episode is longer than most of the other episodes and have the most story content. Right, because they want to um, get as many hooks in exactly, you as possible. Exactly. Like, like, around maybe, like, episode three or even four, like, for a lot of these narrative games are pretty underwhelming and under... I don't want to say underdeveloped, but, like, just shorter than their introductory episode. And um, I think it would be nice if equal amount of care was put into each episode. Um... Because right. otherwise, like, you could see people saying that, like, they're just trying to con you into buying the series with the first episode, and I don't think that's ever the case. No, I don't think that's true either. I uh, I don't know. I definitely don't like the flack that these get. Like, I feel like there's a, a lot of hardcore gamers who really hate walking simulators you know, because that, you, that's they just, don't take any skill. And that's obnoxious and stupid. Yeah, and those games aren't intended. I mean, like, if you want to show off your skills, play something else. Play... Play a you shooter, know, play yeah, anything. Play a fighting else. game, but like these, like I, I, I've often said, like anyone on the planet, I think, could play video games and enjoy them because right. in this day and age, there are more genres of video games than there are genres of like movies at this point. You know, like there's so many different games for different moods, different tastes. So it's just a matter of finding what appeals to you. 
Right. And there's no, yeah, it's and it's I, silly to berate someone for not playing something with, like, insane mechanics. Yeah, and a lot of these narrative games are great because, like, there's something you can sit down with your, your significant other and play through and, like, you're not feeling like, oh, man, I wish I had the controller in my hand right now <laughs> instead of them because, like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, that's another great plus for these games. They're almost just as fun to watch as they are to play. Right. Because um, you're still, it's like almost watching, like, a TV show or a movie. You're still getting the story in that format. And, like, yeah, and I think it's really cool to, yeah, I just think it's really cool to play through with a friend a lot of these stories because I, I think there's something to be said. You can't expect a movie to be, like, an eight-hour experience like Life is Strange or the Telltale games, but a game can deliver a movie-like story over that sort of a time frame, and they can get away with it, which I think is great. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's just another thing games as a medium can do that a film cannot. It's I mean, the, a film the, could, but it's the interact it's the interactivity factor, you know. The fact that you're controlling this avatar's every movement just just that fact alone makes you more invested in that character. Right. And I also I I'm a I'm a huge proponent of games as art and I think narrative games are a big push towards that. Absolutely. Granted, you know, I feel like not every narrative game has been. Oh yeah, I, Minecraft I, I, story I, mode is not. I've played some narrative games that aren't too compelling. Minecraft story mode is one of them. It's uh, not the Mona Lisa. <laughs> uh, everybody's gone to the Rapture. It was an interesting premise, but the story was just meandering, and the gameplay just consisted of walking through these like beautiful locations and like listening to conversations, and that gets boring. Despite how interesting the story may be, that gets boring after a while. But, you know, uh, alongside those, you have The Beginner's Guide, What Remains of Edith Finch. Even The Stanley Parable, really, is, yeah. I, w- I would call, a work of art. Some some game, some game narrative simulator devs also get kind of this air pretentiousness, almost. Especially, like, an example that I've seen was Sunset. Their devs went into a fit because their game didn't sell well. Oh, well, that's not cool. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Yeah, it's, it's like they it, were though. expecting it to sell well when it's, you know, a very deeply, like, walking simulator-style narrative game that not a lot of people would buy. It's a very niche so, market. So, like, it's, it's, it's a fine line because I feel like you have to know what... If you, if you are a storyteller and you want to tell... If you want to put your narrative out there in the world, I feel like you have to choose the right medium in which to convey it. Like, if it's not suited to be a video game, write a book or something, you know? See, I, I think that's hard, though, because, like, I'm not an author. I'm a video game developer. But if I have a story I want to tell... Oh, no, exactly. Yeah, like, yeah. It's going to so be... So then a, you, should, yeah. you should make it in the form of a video game. Yeah. Because you know what it takes to create, like, an interesting video game. Right. There has to be some meaningful weight given to the fact that you can control the main character. Right. I um, think... The air of pretension, I don't know. I think it, the games as art discussion gets messy because people don't want their Call of Duty to go away. And I feel like people think games as art is threatening that. People think games as art makes games political. The games are already political. You can't, there's nothing that's not political, you know. You can't observe anything in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. I think narrative games are just kind of like the natural progression, you know. People have stories to tell. Finally, games are evolving past having hor- like it used to be a stereotype that all games had terrible stories, and I I feel like yeah. we've really moved past that oh, in the absolutely. past ten years. Yeah, and I narrative mean, games go with that. I want to bring up the old discussion that was had a while ago of that Dragon Cancer and the developers speaking out against Let's Plays of this game. 
Yeah, I um I do sort of have a problem with let's plays of a narrative game. I think because the develop you're experiencing almost that entire game for free. Yeah, but I mean, again, I feel like that's not really something you could fight. That's that, I mean, it that is legally. Be... You have every right to fight that. I think. Mm, I don't it know if I agree. If depends. you if, if you develop and release a game, and it's being streamed on Twitch, I feel like. Even if it's a narrative game, I feel like... You have a legal right to prevent that. Every game developer has a right to stop people from doing Let's Plays and streams of their games. That's where fair use comes in, though, because if they're altering it in such a way, like commenting over it or... But especially in today's environment, I feel like if you do that, you're immediately the bad guy. Yeah. I don't think, like... I think that sucks, though, because, like, if I had watched a Let's Play of Gone Home, I would feel I would not be compelled to buy the game at all. There's no reason to. Yeah. If somebody 100%s that game and you watch them do it, you but have 100% I don't know if that's that a fight worth fighting, though. I, like, I do. Based I on the, like, do you think it'd be worth the consequences, though? I mean, I think somebody's going to have to face those consequences, but after it happens once, I think a precedent will be set. It's all about the audience that the people of that, of that YouTube channel or Twitch stream are. I mean, because look, most of the time, you those people probably wouldn't buy the game anyway if they're just watching the player person play it. I mean, look what happened to Nintendo, though. Like... Nintendo went and um, they demonetized everybody's games and did the Nintendo Partnership Program, right? Yeah, and and people hated it, but nobody stopped making videos of Nintendo games. There were people who did. Some people did, and then they eventually got over it. Yeah, but and before Nintendo that, takes a cut of the money, right? Isn't that? I think so. So I could see narrative games getting away with that. I wouldn't mind, you know, if I'm taking a cut of that revenue. But I would, I would be very upset if I painstakingly made this game. I also feel like for narrative games in in particular, I feel like if you're interested in the story, you will probably play the game. And I feel like that type of gamer isn't one to, like, go on Twitch and watch, like, all of Life is Strange or something. Yeah, especially if there's branching plot lines and the streamer does not choose the option that you wanted to choose. You're like, I wonder where this goes from here. Right, but I I think you can tell a good story without branching plot lines. Like, Gone Home, for instance, has none of that. Uh, the Beginner's Guide has none of that. I'd say Telltale has none of that because they're branching plot lines. They're fake, yeah. Yeah, they're fake branching plot lines. There's really nothing you can choose. Which I will say as a designer, I have nothing against the fake branching plot yeah. line. But <laughs> it just has gotten old at this point because there's so many Telltale games. Yeah, I, I think having a choice in itself is not a bad thing, even if the choice doesn't affect anything. It it engages the player. But like I think eventually Telltale games are going to die out because there's so many of them. They're just flooding their own niche with yeah. the same game. They are. See, but what Telltale is doing smart is that they're tackling all these different franchises that may appeal to different people. Like uh, Game of Thrones, you know, that's a very specific audience. And they a did huge a Batman, audience. didn't they? Yeah, they have a, they're, they're on season two of their Batman series. Minecraft story um, mode still exists. Yeah, but Minecraft <sighs> is humongous with kids, you know? Oh, yeah, they definitely sold so, tons of Minecraft. So they, I think they're picking and choosing their franchises very smartly to their credit. Right, yeah. I, I think they're trying to get rid of the... They don't want the Telltale gamer anymore. They want... The Batman fan exactly. who plays the Batman 100%, game. Yeah. yeah. And I think they're actually succeeding at that. What else? They have like a Guardians of the Galaxy series now. Really? Yeah. That's, I might have to check that out. Uh, they have, uh, what else? The Wolf Among Us was one of my favorites. It's like a very obscure... That's original, isn't it? No, it, oh, it was actually based off of a very obscure like DC Comics like fairy tale thing. Huh. And they adapted that and it was excellent. 
I highly recommend everyone check that out. Um, Walking Dead, obviously. They've done, like, three seasons yeah, of that. Yeah, that's iconic. Um, and there's more I'm not thinking of. Oh, Tales from the Borderlands is another one of my favorite ones. Oh, right. I, f- yeah. I forget about that one. I was... Very funny game. I mean, uh, it's probably hit or miss if you like Borderlands comedy. But that's the thing. I had never played a Borderlands game before playing that game. Really? Yeah, and I absolutely loved it. Did you go back and play the Borderlands games because of it? I actually did, yeah. I wow. played, well, I played Borderlands 2. I wouldn't recommend 1. I, yeah. I would recommend, 1's an okay game. It just doesn't have the comedic edge that 2 had. And pre-sequel, if you're not Australian, yep. you're not going to get half the jokes. I, my issue, okay, this is totally unrelated. I don't like Borderlands 2's comedy. Uh, it was very dated. It was, it wasn't dated when I, because I played it near release, so it wasn't dated at the yeah. time. It was completely relevant. See, the thing yeah. that impressed me most about Tales of the Borderlands, it was funny, and it also told a very, like, almost like Star Wars-esque space opera story. Really? Yeah, it was huh. really good. It was very good. I may have to check it out. Yeah. Is it, uh, they're fully voice acted, right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess uh, just to round this segment off, uh, what are some of your favorite narrative-based games, both of you? I honestly don't think I have one because I don't play a lot of narrative-based games. Connor? Um, mm, mine's got to be Gone Home. Mm-hmm. Well, <sighs> Gone Home or The Beginner's Guide, they're both so good. I have Beginner's Guide. I'll, I'll change it to Beginner's Guide. <laughs> On any day, I feel like I would give you one of these three answers. Either Life is Strange... Tales from the Borderlands or the the Wolf Among Us, uh, the latter the latter two of which are Telltale games. So as always, we're going to end with talking about games we play or games we recommend. I'll go first. Kind of segueing uh, from talking about narrative games, I played Life is Strange Before the Storm, uh, which is a prequel to Life is Strange, in which you play as uh, Chloe, who was the secondary character in Life is Strange. And you, I, I, I absolutely loved it. It's way shorter than Life is Strange. Uh, it, it's very poignant. It's about uh, Chloe and her relationship with um, the character from the original game. Amber? Yeah, Rachel Amber. Uh, and kind of what happened there. And it kind of fills in a lot of the blanks that were there going into Life is, the original Life is Strange. And it, just returning to that world was gratifying to me in a way I didn't know I wanted. Like, seeing those characters again, seeing Arcadia Bay, like, seeing... And and just experiencing, like, that Life is Strange tone. Right. I really very unique. I really resonated with that. And I don't know, like... And, and, and to an extreme degree, like, it was on my mind for days after I finished it. Yeah, I feel like... Uh, speak, speaking of the feel of Arcadia Bay, I think Life is Strange gets a lot of flack for, like the lingo they use, like, everybody says hella and stuff. Yeah, that's that's capturing, like, a very specific subset. Right, like... like, It's getting that generation. And even... I'm not even sure that it it was ever really like that, but it doesn't matter. It evokes something. Yeah. Yeah. It it evokes a feeling that may have never really existed, but you can still be a little nostalgic for it. Exactly. You can still get into it. 100%. I agree. And um, I'm not going to say anything about the story because I think that's something everyone should experience, but... Just the connection that uh, Chloe and Rachel form and where that takes them in terms of the plot and where that leads them to ultimately before Life is Strange, I think is a very wonderful, poignant, and in some ways tragic story. And I think if you were a fan of the first game, you absolutely 100% need to play this prequel. Uh, Michael? 
Uh, I'm kind of torn. Uh, I think I'm going to talk about Ratchet Deadlock because I played that like a month ago, and it it holds up for Wait, one of the Ratchet and Clank. Ratchet Deadlock. Oh, nice. Okay. Which was one of the games that was kind of looked upon as like this isn't a Ratchet and Clank game. It's actually a decent game, surprisingly. Is that the one where it's like not there's not really a ton of story like it's it's a bunch of different trials and you can play it multiplayer? Yes. Okay, I love that game. It was That so was the good. first Ratchet and Clank game I ever played. I was on PS2. Yeah, it was it was it's an okay game and people like to trash it because you know, oh, it's no platformer. There's no platforming. Clank's not there. But it has its own merits. Isn't Clank there if you play multiplayer? The second player plays as Clank? Yeah, the second player plays as, like, Robo-Clank or something. Yeah. Something ridiculous. But, like, the mechanics are there. The weapons are wacky. It's a little repetitive, but, you know... Yeah, I'll give it that. It was such a good party game, though. Like, I loved yeah. going to hang out with my buds and playing that game when I was little. The vehicle controls are all wonky. Oh, yeah. They weren't wonky back in the day, was but they're it wonky today. solely a multiplayer game? No, it was single-player. Okay. Single player. I never played. I never played that Ratchet game. Um, you can get it on PS3. Would not recommend it because that copy <laughs> is buggier than the actual game. Really? Yeah. The port. Mm. Every single Ratchet and Clank one, two, three, and Deadlocked port have more bugs than the original PS2 versions, just because of the port job. Hmm. So if you want to speed run it, get the PS3 version because there's so many bugs that aren't in the PS2 version, and it's a lot more consistent on that one. But otherwise, buy a PS2, play the game. It's worth your time. Yeah, I might have to take that advice. If you have a friend, borrow it. Connor? I guess I'm going to have to go with the Beginner's Guide. So the Beginner's Guide is... It's a narrative game, like we were talking about earlier. A walking simulator. Where you are kind of guided through a series of games by by the game's creator, Davey Reedon. And the games he is guiding you through are created by a person called Coda. And the whole game is basically Davy Reedon trying to explain Coda's craft to you. And um, it's just he tries to really... Davy Reedon really gets into who Coda is through his work. And I think it's really interesting. And uh, it's a really good game. And I would recommend it to anyone. Uh, it's, like, it's only like two or three hours long. So if, you, if you're low on time like I am these days, you can still get through it. Are there, like, puzzle elements in the game, or is it more strictly narrative? There is one puzzle, and it will take you probably two seconds to solve. It's not... It's strictly narrative. The puzzle exists for the narr- for narrative reasons. Cool. All right, awesome. I think that'll do it for us this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Bye.